Welcome to church. I'm so grateful that you are here, whether online or in the room. If this is your first time, we welcome you. I'm so grateful that you are here. Uh, next week, our teaching team is going to lead us through a teaching series called Road Trip. And we're going to look at moments where people encountered God on the road. It's summer, maybe there's a road trip planned for you. So we invite you back in July, and it'll give me a little bit of a breather from teaching for a few weeks as well. So join us back next week as we start a new series. And at the end of July, Dr. Gene Getz is going to be here with us at Bentry. And if you don't know Gene, he's a general in the faith. He was so instrumental in launching Bentry. And I can't wait for you to hear his story and the passion of his heart that planted this church some 45 plus years ago. So that'll be at the end of July. I also want you to know that I'm going to address the events of this Friday at the end of my sermon. So hang in with me. That's a little bit of a preacher trick to keep you here the whole time. <laughs> Eight years before I got married, uh, my friends asked, hey, do you want to run this marathon with us? Sure, I said, it sounds like fun. Little did I know about marathons. And it, it was just a few months before I got married to Stacy, and so I said, hey, this is a good way to get in shape. So I said yes to running this marathon. So we trained for about two months, uh, because I didn't run a whole lot before then, so we trained for about two months, and we had gone up to running about 10 miles. Now I realized, I think I've had enough. I think I'm good. Like, I actually want to live towards my wedding day, and I don't think I can keep living if I keep running. And so I decided to quit. Now, I thought my good friends, my real friends would quit with me, but they didn't. They kept on training. They kept on running for the next two months. And finally, it was the week of the marathon. My friends are talking about their plans to go to San Antonio and run this marathon and the weekend plans. And you know what came over me? FOMO, like major FOMO, fear of missing out. Okay, does anyone else struggle with FOMO? You fear missing out. Yeah, you don't want to be left out. And so I decided, you know what? I'm going to re-register myself for this marathon. The week of the marathon, I hadn't ran in two months. I just, I don't want to miss out. I'm going to do this. My friends didn't think it was a good idea, and it wasn't a good idea, but I was not going to let them have all the fun, and they couldn't talk me nor my FOMO out of it. So I went home that night and re-registered for the marathon. There we are, 5 a.m., so early on Friday morning in San Antonio, and we ran the marathon. As you can imagine, it was the worst, most miserable day of my life. <laughs> now, here's the deal. By the grace of God alone, by the mercy of God alone, I finished second to last, okay? Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I, I finished right before this sweet elderly lady who was just walking across the finish line, but I did it. I got the t-shirt and the medal. That was good enough for me. All the while, I didn't enjoy it one bit. It was hard. My friends, it was easy. It was a piece of cake. There was a guy, I think it was his 1,000th time to run a marathon. He finished so early uh, to be like him one day. But I enjoyed it. I'm, I'm sorry, I finished, although I didn't quite enjoy it. And here's why. I tried without training. I tried without training. I had an outcome in mind, and I decided to try without training. The whole experience would have been so different if I actually stuck with the training program. If daily and weekly rhythms were committed to, and I pressed on towards the outcome by training. So many of us in our spiritual journey, in our spiritual growth, we are trying rather than training. We're trying to hear the voice of God. We're trying to experience intimacy with God and sense His presence. But I want to encourage you today, don't try, but train. 
In fact, here is what the Apostle Paul said to, first, to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 to 8. Paul said, have nothing to do with pointless and silly myths. Rather, train yourself in godliness. For the training of the body has limited benefit, but godliness is beneficial in every way, since it holds promise for the present life and for the one to come. Paul did not tell young Timothy to try, but to train to try is to achieve a goal, but to train is to be transformed. To try is to take a leap, but to train is to take baby steps. You can try alone, but you cannot train alone. There is somebody walking with you. There is somebody holding your hand, and you are training. When you train, if you make a mistake, if you fall back, there's no guilt or condemnation. Your training gets you back up, and you keep going. Well, we've been talking about spiritual rhythms, these rhythms of grace through which we connect and grow with God. And it is an invitation to train our heart to hear God, to train our soul to walk in proximity of closeness with Jesus. And grace trains us. The Holy Spirit grows us in the grace of God. And in this series called Rhythms of Grace, we're looking particularly at the life of Jesus Jesus, within just three and a half years of ministry, though he had a lot to do, he was never overly busy. He was not panicking or living in a frantic pace. No, Jesus lived a centered, interruptible, and unhurried life. How did he do that? Over the last two weeks, we've looked at Jesus' life in prayer. Jesus enjoying intimacy with the Father in solitude with the Father. Last week, we looked at how Jesus grew even in Scripture. He was immersed in the Scriptures. He grew in wisdom. Today, we're going to conclude this series by me giving you one more rhythm. Now, there's many more rhythms we can look at from the life of Jesus. Rhythms like community and service in others. But today, I want to talk to you about the rhythm of worship. The rhythm of worship. Worship is both individual and it's collective. You can do worship by yourself, and we can do it in a room like this, in a setting, like wherever you're joining us online from. Worship can be private, but also collective. If uh, this is your only total sum of worship this whole month, well, you're probably having a hard time worshiping even in this moment, because worship is to be the rhythm of our heart. Worship is to be a daily offering of our lives to God. Growing in deep affection and love for Jesus. In fact, even Jesus, when he taught us how to pray, he bracketed the Lord's prayer with worship. It began by saying, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. If we just pause to think about what it took for God to be your Father, that'll lead you to worship. Oh, what deep, profound gospel truths by and through which you can call God your Father. Oh, that's an act of worship. And Jesus ended the prayer, for thine is the glory and the kingdom and the power forever. Amen. It is an exaltation in worship of deep trust in God alone. We are invited even in prayer to worship. Now, last week we looked at Luke chapter 2 and of Jesus growing in wisdom. And today I want to revisit the same chapter and pick up something we didn't pay attention to last week. Luke chapter 2, verse 41 to 42, reads like this. Every year, his parents, the parents of Jesus, traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. 
When he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom of the festival. Every year they traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And they went up even this year with Jesus who was 12. Mary and Joseph were like any good Jewish parents committed to attending the Passover festival. They probably attended all of the major feasts, and particularly every year they would come to Jerusalem for the Passover. Now, this is a long trip from Galilee or Nazareth in Galilee to Jerusalem. It's at least an 80-mile trip on foot, which would take about four to five days in those days. But they were so committed, even with a toddler, even with a 12-year-old, to come to the temple for Passover and worship God, offer their sacrifices. Jesus is 12, which means he is one year away from being legally considered an adult. Because in Jewish customs, you were an adult at the age of 13. I don't know if I'd appreciate that today, but it was back then. But until he was 13, he would worship with where the women and children would gather at the temple, at the court of women. So here, imagine at the Passover festival, Jesus is with his family. He's with Mary. He's with family, worshiping God at the temple there. Think about that. Jesus is at the temple with Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph wanted Jesus to be prepared, even before he was 13, to be at the temple, to experience all of this. They were preparing him in this family worship experience. Here at Bentry, we value family worship. In fact, we have Sundays throughout the year, what we call a family Sundays, and we invite Alicia, elementary age kids and up, to come and be with us in service. Why? So they can see you parents worshiping God. So they can see you in a setting like this, pour out your affection to God, your love and devotion to God, so that they can see you singing your heart's affection to Jesus. So that they can see you hearing God's word and responding to it. So that it creates conversations in home about what you just experienced. It's a beautiful thing, an intentional thing to attend with families. In fact, all throughout July, we are having family Sundays. Next week is all in Sunday. And next weeks after that, for three, four weeks, it'll be family Sunday. So I'm asking you, make it a priority to be here in person, if at all possible, even if you're online only. Join us in person because it's amazing for your kids to watch the body worship and for them to watch you worship and other children worship. Mary and Jesus and Joseph go to the temple. And in one year, Jesus would be what? 13. He would be an adult. And something happens amazingly in the life of Jesus. When he is 13, he can now progress from the court of women all the way to where men would gather at the temple. That's the way that the temple was set up, towards the inner corridor in the inner courtyard. So Jesus, at the age of 13, one year from Luke 2, he would ascend the steps of the temple and be in the inner court where he could observe the sacrifices could hear the priest. Can you imagine this? Jesus, who has come from heaven to earth, he has descended from the throne room of God, the real throne room of God. And he is standing in a magnificent but man-made temple that is supposed to be a mere representation of what heaven and the throne room of God is like. But there Jesus is, God in flesh, standing in the temple. He could look up and he would hear the prayers of his earthly dad, Joseph. Prayers of confession for the forgiveness of sins. Prayers for their family. He could hear the sound of other men around him praying. 
worshiping, confessing. He would hear all of that. And then soon, Joseph would go to the priest and he would give the priest their sacrificial lamb. The family had come with, they had traveled all of these days with the lamb. And here, Joseph would give to the priest the lamb for sacrifice. The priest would take that lamb, would cut open the lamb, and let the blood of the lamb flow down the table. It would be collected, the blood would be collected by cups that were rounded at the bottom so that the cup would never sit down, could never be placed down. They would collect the cup full of blood, and then priests in the temple would line up from that point to where the sacrifice was offered all the way to the altar where the blood would be sprinkled. And one priest after another would line up. And the first priest would give the cup of blood to the next. And it would pass down so intentionally, so reverentially, one priest to the next until it reached the last priest who would tilt the cup over and sprinkle the blood on the altar. And then the lamb that was slain would be hung on special hooks and skinned. Can you imagine Jesus seeing this, hearing this, feeling all of this? And for the next 20 years as an adult, Jesus coming to the Passover, seeing and feeling and experiencing Passover, all of which was just a mere representation of what would happen to his own body. What growing sense of passion, even identity and belonging he felt year after year looking towards the day when he would be the lamb. Here's what's remarkable. When we worship Jesus on this side of the cross, Jesus is both the temple, he is the sacrifice, and he is the high priest. Jesus is all of those things. He is the temple, the sacrifice, and the high priest. Jesus said it about his own body, tear down this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. John, when he saw Jesus at the baptism, said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Notice how the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus, our high priest. Hebrews 7, verse 24 onwards. But because he remains forever, because Jesus remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. For this is the kind of high priest we need. Oh, isn't that correct? This is the kind of high priest we need. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, first for their own sins, then for those of the people. He did this once for all time when he offered up himself, the high priest and the sacrifice. The writer goes on at the beginning of chapter 8 after this extravagant exposition of Jesus as a high priest, and he says, now the main point is this. I don't want you to miss this. Here's the main point. We have this kind of high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle that was set up by the Lord and not man. When we gather for worship, whether in this room or in your home, wherever you are, when we gather for worship, we come 
with great expectation, great hope, with great longing. Why? Because Jesus is the temple, the sacrifice, and the high priest. He is the source of our hope. He is the reason for our expectancy. He is the cause for our reverence. He is the joy that we feel inside, the relief of our sin, because Jesus is the temple we go to. He is the perpetual sacrifice seated at the mercy seat of God. He is the high priest forever, permanently, always interceding for you. Ministering not only to you, but ministering for you on your behalf. So every time we gather for worship, the reason why our worship is acceptable to God is simply because of Jesus. It's not because of how great we are, how holy we are. It's because of how holy and perfect and righteous Jesus is. He's the reason why worship is received by the Father. Amen? Amen. Jesus alone. The early church, as the church was launched after Pentecost, they would come to the temple and worship Jesus until they got kicked out of the temple. And then they would go to the synagogue to worship, to pray, and to teach until they got kicked out of the synagogues. They would gather in homes and they would pray and they would worship. And when they didn't have homes to go to, they would worship in the streets until they were arrested and put in prison. And when they were put in prison, like Paul and Silas, they would sing to God even though they were in chains. They would worship wherever they were, even in prison. Tertullian, the second century church father, said this, we can't feel the stocks on our legs when our heart is in heaven. Can't feel the chains, the hindrance, the barriers on our legs because our heart is in heaven. In worship. No matter where the church has existed, no matter in what country, what condition, they always chose to gather. They chose to be together in community to worship Jesus because no matter where they were at, or what condition they lived in, Jesus was only the temple they could go to. Jesus was always their sacrifice, and Jesus was always their high priest. This is precisely what Jesus said in John 4 when he meets this Samaritan woman at the well. In this conversation with this Samaritan woman, she tells Jesus in verse 20 of John 4, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain. But you Jews say that the place of worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you worship the Father, when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. Because salvation is from the Jews. He was referring to himself. But an hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. This was radical. This was revolutionary. Until then, every religion, every rabbi always secluded worship to a certain temple or a mountain. They put barriers around where God could be. But in this moment, Jesus changes everything. The hour is coming, and in fact, it is here. When true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. In our translations in English, 
that verse 23, there's two prepositions, in spirit, in truth. But in the original text, there's only one preposition, in. True worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. Because the writer here wants to make sure that we don't see these as two different expressions of worship. They're bound together, though two different characteristics. They are one expression. We don't sometimes worship in spirit and sometimes in truth. No, no, no. True worship is always in both. In spirit and truth. In spirit and truth. Notice how Jesus kept this together. Jesus said in John 3, verse 34, For the one whom God sent speaks God's words, since he gives the Spirit without measure. The one God sent speaks the words of God, the truths of God. How? Because he gives the Spirit without measure. Truth is the written word of God, the spoken words of Jesus. It is the message of the gospel, the words of the scripture. That is truth. Notice what James 1 verse 18 says. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Colossians 1 verse 5, the second part says, You have already heard about this hope in the word of truth. And what is the word of truth? It's the gospel. The word of truth is the gospel of Jesus. It is the message of Christ. It is how God has revealed himself on the pages of scripture. It's a self-revelation of God. That is true. It's who God actually is as evidence in the scripture. Now there's also a capital T truth, which is Jesus himself. The word incarnate, the word in flesh. It's Jesus. He is capital T, truth. In fact, Jesus said it like this in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So when you put these verses together, what is truth? How do we worship God in truth? We worship God in truth as he has revealed himself in the scriptures. We wholeheartedly believe the words of Jesus. We wholeheartedly accept the message of the gospel. And we see God for who he truly is in the text. And we see Jesus as the ultimate truth. As truth in the flesh, truth in body. And we surrender our hearts. We surrender our lives to who Jesus is. To the truth that he is. Here's why this is so important. If we worship a certain idea of God that's not in the scriptures, we're actually not worshiping God. If we worship a certain version of Jesus that's not in the scriptures, that's actually idolatry. Because we're worshiping a false idea of who God is. Let me give you an example. If I came up and told you, I love my wife. I'm crazy about my wife. I admire her. I adore her, which is all true, by the way. I deeply am crazy about my wife. You'd ask me, well, tell me about your wife. And I respond, well, her name is Megan. She's got blonde hair and green eyes. You look at me a little crazy. Why? Because that doesn't describe my wife. My wife has black hair, I think, and black hair and brown eyes. And her name is Stacy. I could have emotions about my wife, but if it's not coming from the truth of who she actually is, my emotions actually don't matter. 
In the same way, we worship God in truth when we worship him for who he actually is. To love is to know who a person really is and still love them. And to worship God, to love God, is to know who he is in truth and worship him. So it is doctrine, it is truth, it is the truth of his word that inspires our worship. Now Jesus said, worship in spirit and truth, in truth and spirit. So that means it's not just what we know about God that defines worship. It is how our human spirit is quickened by the Holy Spirit of God in worship. Jesus is speaking about how the Spirit of God gives vibrancy to the deepest part of us, to our human soul, our human spirit. And the Spirit of God in worship stirs up celebration in our soul. He stirs up affection and delight because it's not only about what I know, it is also about what I feel in the deepest part of me. It is the truths of the scripture stirring up deep affection for Jesus by the Spirit of God. It is the Holy Spirit creating vibrancy, fresh passion and life in me through his Spirit. Jesus said it like this in John 4 verse 6. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. Born of the flesh is flesh, but born of the spirit is spirit. So we worship God with what we know, but what we know doesn't stay in our head. It goes all the way down to the deepest part in our inner being because our human spirit has been recreated by the power of the Holy Spirit He causes us to savor Jesus, to delight in him, to pour out our heart, our spirit, and worship to Jesus. Worship can be more than, but never less than what happens in your heart. Worship can be more than, but never less than what happens in your heart. Remember what Jesus said about the Pharisees in Matthew 15? He said this, these people honor me with their lips but their heart is far from me. They honor me with what they say, what they sing, even with what they teach, but their heart is far. Therefore, they worship me in vain. Ooh, they thought they were worshiping, but their worship was in vain, teaching us doctrines, human commands. Jesus is saying, you can say the right words, you can sing the right lyrics, you can quote scripture, you can intellectually believe even the doctrines of Christ. But if worship isn't coming from your heart, if it's not honest, if it's not coming from the deepest places of your soul, Jesus said about the Pharisees, their worship was in vain. Worship is head and heart, truth and spirit. William Temple, he wrote it like this, To worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God. To feed the mind with the truth of God. To purge the imagination by the beauty of God. To open the heart to the love of God. To devote the will to the purposes of God. All of that is worship. Conscience being quickened to the holiness of God by the Holy Spirit of God. Our mind being fed with the truth of God. Our imagination purged by the imagination of God by the beauty of God, and our heart open to God, our will surrendered to God. The Puritans would describe worship as light and heat, 
light and heat. It's light to the mind because it illuminates our mind with instructions of God. But at the same time, it is heat to the heart because he reignites a fresh passion, a fire deep inside of us. Worship is both light to the mind and heat to the heart. Head, heart, truth, and spirit. It is all of those things and must be kept together. I've heard it said like this, that at some point between churches and denomination, it's as if the spirit and truth had a divorce. And some kids went with spirit and some with truth. Some churches, some denominations, well, we're going to be more spirit or we're going to be more truth. But that's never to be the case. Revival happens. True worship happens when we keep together what was always meant to be together. Worship in spirit and worship in truth. That's the worshipers that God is seeking who are coming to him with vibrancy of heart. However you emote your passion, you're coming to him from the deepest part of who you are. And it's all formed by the scriptures, by who God really is. Now this does not mean that you have to worship just like the person down the aisle from you. No, no, no. What this means is that however you are wired, however you are formed by God in the uniqueness of your heart, be genuine in worship, in truth, and in spirit. If the truths of God lead you to raise hands or to kneel down or to fall flat on your face, if it leads you to shout and dance, please do that. Be genuine to how God has created you. You here are free to do that. At the same time, if the truth of God calls you into solemn reflection, deep stillness, calmness, if it leads you to journal or write or to be quiet and receive the truths of God in you, do that. However God has wired you to worship, be genuine. And worship in truth and in spirit. This is the worship God is seeking. We worship because Jesus is the temple, the sacrifice, and our high priest. And true worshipers worship him, not just what they know, but how they feel. And not just how they feel, but with the truth of who God is. The truths of God by the Spirit of God stirring up deep affections for God. So we looked at a life in prayer. Life immersed in the scriptures and a life in worship. May we always be that here at Bentry. I got to tell you, to be honest, sometimes I struggle with prayer. I know, you don't believe me. I'm the pastor. Sometimes I too struggle in prayer. But you know what I do? I turn on a worship song. Something about hearing gospel truth sung. Not just spoken, but sung. Opens my heart. Other times I'll flip through the Psalms. Reading songs of praise or lament. Let the Psalms minister to my soul until my heart can come before God in worship. May we be that kind of a church. Do you bow your heads with me? If you're here today and you have yet to worship Jesus, today Jesus is your perfect sacrifice. He is the temple, He is your priest. Go to Him, run to Him. He's available. Open your heart and say, Jesus, I receive this gift of life. I receive the forgiveness of my sins. I trust that you are the perfect sacrifice interceding for me. I trust that you died, you rose, and you're coming back for me. The Bible says if you confess that with your mouth, you believe that with your heart, you are saved.
and you're invited to worship in truth and in spirit. So Father, may you raise up worshipers at Bentry. Worshipers in truth and in spirit, offering our heart to you in truth and in spirit, loving you in your word, seeing you as you really are, and daily growing in our affection and delight in Jesus in private places and in public places, in our homes and in the sanctuary. Oh, we want to be worshipers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Right after the service, if you need to take your next step, if you want to join us in the prayer room, we invite you to do so. Now, I want to address a sensitive topic in our nation today, a topic in our country. And in doing so, I want to be sensitive, and I want to ask you to be sensitive and respectful to those brothers and sisters in Christ who may share a a different opinion than you or have a different viewpoint than you regarding abortion. Scripture admonishes us to be slow to speak and quick to listen. That applies in every case. As you are aware, this Friday morning, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled to overthrow the 1973 landmark decision of Roe versus Wade. And there are many emotions that we have to be feeling as Christians, as the people of God today. First of all, I am thankful because I do believe that this is a significant step in the sanctity of life for all preborn image bearers of God. And we can humbly thank God for laws that promote life and protect life. Secondly, we ought to appropriately grieve over the 63 plus million children who have been aborted since 1973. At the same time, we feel compassion because we recognize that every mom or dad who decided to abort a child did not do it lightly. It was a deep, personal, and heartbreaking matter, so we overflow with compassion in our heart. Last week, I told you that in these deep, complex, and personal matters, we do two things. We love from the heart, and we go to the scriptures. We love from the heart, and we go to the scriptures, and that's what we will do even in this one. Here's what I've come to realize about the heart of God through the scriptures. God is more than pro-life. God is pro-abundant life. He's more than pro-life. He is pro-abundant life. Jesus said in John 10, verse 10, I have come so that in me you would have life. And how? Life in abundance. In me you may have life and life in abundance. God had a whole life agenda. A whole life plan for the well-being and the flourishing of every human being, every person, from the moment of conception to them being in eternity with God forever. That is his plan. And God longs for the abundant life in the unborn child in the womb, in the born child outside of the womb, in the born teenagers, in the born adult, in the born dad, and in the born mom. God longs for abundant life life. So wherever we land on this topic, our mission has always been to help people experience this abundant life in Jesus. That's it. We exist as a church to help people experience life, this abundant life in Jesus. God can use laws and legislation 
to advance his purposes in the world, and he certainly has done so across history. But we know that ultimately laws do not change hearts. Only the love of God can change the heart of people. Only God's love can transform us from inside out. So the mission of the church and our church has been the same before the days of Roe v. Wade. And since the days of Roe v. Wade, it's always been the same. We exist to experience and share the extraordinary love of Jesus so that everyone and anyone can have abundant life in Jesus, regardless of their past, regardless of their story, regardless of their concerns and fears, oh, that they might experience abundant life in Jesus. Now, I am thankful that more children will be born as of last Friday, which means we must now recommit our lives to receiving those children with our hands to receiving them with our hands. Now is not the time to wash our hands clean. Now is the time to roll up our sleeves and be about the work of caring for children and moms who feel unprepared. Now is not the time to let up, but to lean in and care for those who are concerned, who are struggling in our community. It is a time to come alongside moms who feel unprepared, to come alongside of them, It is a time to mentor dads, to mentor men, to be accountable, to be responsible, to be godly, to be accountable for the decisions that they too have made. Because no woman should ever bear this challenge on their own. We must support every infrastructure and every future legislation that honors the sanctity of life in every stage of life and for all people. In every stage, for every people, we must celebrate and honor the sanctity of life. Christians throughout the history of the world have always rolled up their sleeve to care for children and to care for families. In first century, if you walked into a a house church, you would most likely hear the sound of singing children who were just rescued by Christians. Often, Rome and other Jews would consider children discarded. But these Christians would go up and down the road of Rome and pick up abandoned children because they believed that they were made in the image of God and that God loved them. It was Christians across history that started hospitals and orphanages and compassion centers. Even today, the vast majority of pregnancy care centers and compassion centers are ran by people of faith, by Christians themselves. And even today, we must keep on this work. There is still work to be done. So what I'm saying is that today, we re-up our commitment to foster and adopt We re-up our commitment to foster and adopt. I recently read that there are over 424,000 children in foster care systems waiting for a home. In 2020, there were over 380,000 churches in America. So what if every church fostered or adopted at least one child, maybe two? Oh, how every child would find a home. I'm grateful for many of you here at Bentry who have adopted, who have fostered, or are in that process right now. We must re-up our commitment. And if you can't personally do that, we can all financially support, we can all practically support those who do this. In a recent survey of 1,000 post-abortive women, 76% said that they would have preferred to parent their child 
had their circumstances been different. 76% longed to be parents, wanted to parent if their circumstances had been different. So church, we must stay in this work. Not only until abortion is legal, but until abortion is unimaginable. Because the resource, the love, and the support from Christians is plentiful. Because it's abundant. That's the work ahead of us. Here at Ventry, two major parts of our mission strategy has already been to advocate for children and empower women. To advocate for children and empower women. We have been and we will continue to bring dignity, value, and worth to women here and around the world. And we have been and we will continue to bring protection, justice, access to food, health care, and opportunities for children here and around the world. I want you to listen to a few of our partners that we are engaged every single week to do this. Through our partner, Life Song for Orphans, we are supporting children through global orphan ministries, Christian adoptive families, and foster care initiatives. Through Bentry Foster and Adoption, right here at our church, through Bentry Foster and Adoption, we are supporting families in our church who are fostering, adopting, or have already adopted, adopted children. Through our partner, Human Coalition, we are working city by city through pregnancy centers to end abortion by providing life-affirming resources. Through Safe Families, this amazing volunteer-led ministry in our area, many of them right here in our church, we are surrounding families in urgent crisis. We are coming alongside of them to care and offer resources to them. We're also working with six different anti-trafficking organizations in our city to free children and women and boys who are abused and trafficked. So here's what I'm asking you, church. Let's continue to help people experience abundant life in Jesus, both in the womb and outside the womb. And here's how you can do that. First of all, go to our missions page at ventry.org and find these partners and find ways to serve with them, to give your time and energy to these frontline ministries who are serving families in crisis in our region. Second of all, I'm asking you to give financially over and beyond your normal giving, particularly to missions. Because when you give to missions, it goes directly to these ministries. 100% goes directly to these ministries. I am expecting there to be a surge in needs from our partners to care for families in our area. I want us to be ready. So consider giving directly to missions to help families in need. And here's the last thing I'm asking. I'm asking you to be kind respectful, and loving toward those who do not share your thought on this matter. I'm asking you to be kind and respectful. I'm asking you to listen, hear their story, and share your story with them. I'm committed to doing that, and I'm asking you to do the same. Let me tell you, Satan wants nothing more than to divide and destroy the church of Jesus but we will not let that happen here at Bentry. We won't. We will strive for unity. We will always preach the gospel, and we will contend for our faith. And we will contend for the peace of unity and the bond of unity between brothers and sisters in Christ. I know that just by sheer statistics, 
There are many listening to me right now who may have already had an abortion. And I want you to hear me today that you are loved, you are accepted, you are embraced, you are not dismissed, you are not judged. You are welcomed here, you are loved here, you're part of us. And more importantly, you are part of the body of Christ. And if you are here and at some point in your journey, you find yourself in an unplanned pregnancy, or even in a planned pregnancy you are unprepared for, I want you to know that this is your church family. We will be here for you. We will walk with you. We will care for you. We will love you. Come to us. Tell us how we can serve you. We have already designated financial resources to care for you, to walk with you, to help you. We're going to be right there with you. Would you stand with me today? As we close, I want to just read the words of God from Psalm 139. This is how God feels about every person, unborn, preborn, born, children and adults, regardless of their story, regardless of where they find themselves. Here are the thoughts of God towards you. For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous, and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was formed in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. God, how precious your thoughts are to me. How vast their sum is. If I counted them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake up, I am still with you. Amen and amen. God bless you. Have a great rest of the day.